Hello, and welcome to Health Trust Clinical Services Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talked to Dr. Schaefer Spires, infectious disease specialist with Duke Health. Dr. Spires is treating patients and monitoring the impact of COVID-19 at Duke. We discuss, among other things, returning to elective surgeries, COVID-19 testing, the effectiveness of antibody testing, and the use of medication to treat the virus. My name is Schaefer Spires. I'm an infectious disease clinician at Duke University Hospital. One of my main roles here is the medical director of Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network within the Center for Antibiotic Stewardship and Infection Prevention uh, here in our division. And uh, yeah, just been playing a role for, as a consultant for several hospitals and basically in patient safety and antibiotic stewardship. Uh, I did spend the past five, six years uh, at Vanderbilt where I did infection prevention and antibiotic stewardship at Vanderbilt and at uh, a community hospital there. So what we wanted to talk about here um, this morning, obviously, Schaefer, is the COVID-19 pandemic, and obviously this is constantly evolving. But one of the things I thought that was um, interesting that came out in the last couple of days was a national online survey um, that really demonstrated, obviously, the impact that this has had, not only financially, obviously, but certainly uh, from a healthcare standpoint. And there was some interesting statistics in there, one being that um, at least half, if not close to 60% of the country feels that this is the most important issue facing the country. Um, And 80% actually are worried that they or someone in their immediate family might catch the coronavirus. So to start, I was just curious, you know, um, outside of healthcare, just within your community, are you starting to see reopening of some of the businesses there? We are in North Carolina. I think you know we we've uh, I'd say we've been a little bit behind, uh, instance, Georgia and Tennessee as far as the increase in cases, and therefore I think we've had a little bit of uh, a cushion and advantage as far as mitigating the incidents. And actually, our state is going to start opening up uh, some businesses, restaurants. Uh, other types of gathering, like church gathering, uh, with restrictions tonight. And so it's going to wow. be a big, um, a big, uh, big deal for a lot of places. Looking at our own hospital, you know, our hospital has actually had a lower census related to the closure of all the um, elective procedures and stuff. And just this week, we're starting to see that census starting to go up. You know, our console volume, for instance, is almost back to where it was pre-COVID uh, mm. for other non-COVID scenarios. So our hospital census is going up. And I know we'll probably touch on that a little bit in a minute. Um, but I think there's still a lot of hesitancy for patients and families wanting to come to the hospital if they can uh, help it. Yeah. Yeah, we were um, speaking the other day, and I kind of did a, a brief informal survey of some of the large health systems that that we here at Health Trust support. And on average, uh, it was about 25% of the patients that they were reaching out to 
um, that had kind of been backed up, uh, backlogged elective procedures, and about 25% were willing to come in. The other 75% um, were saying that they wanted to wait. So, you know, it's this constant, you know, balancing the risks of reopening versus the risks of some of these patients holding off on, um, you know, necessary treatments where now they're presenting with some chronic conditions that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And I think you've, you've seen some cases like that, right? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great point. I, this is, uh, you know, everybody worries about going and sitting in the waiting room and you never know who's going to be coughing on you and things like that. And I think, you know, that part of that is, is appropriate, but, uh, you know, here, yeah, and there are things that you really cannot stay away from uh, healthcare, or it's going to get worse. And for instance, just this week on the consult service, I, I am seeing uh, a gentleman who has had fevers and chills for over a week and avoided going to the ER and couldn't get in to see his uh, primary care doctor because he supposedly had to have a negative COVID test before he could see him. And you know, eventually, come two days ago, he finally declines enough to where a ho- uh, an ambulance brings him to the hospital, and turns out he's got a MRSA bacteremia, you know, in a cancer patient, who, and he's clearly been bacteremic for over a week before any treatment. So it's, mm. you know, that's that that, and I, there's been other scenarios for even patients uh, associated with our clinic. If they're not very close, they couldn't get there, and didn't want to go to the ER in their local ER, and one guy ended up having a pretty uh, bad uh, medication toxicity that was causing their fevers and respiratory symptoms. And I know that's, I'm just seeing the infections, but you know things like wounds get worse if they're not being addressed right. and get deeper and become bone infections. And then I know there's other syndromes like stroke and coronary syndrome that you know these guys need to be uh seen and I, I you know i don't i don't think right now and john tell me if, if you disagree but i don't think our ERs are necessarily an unsafe place to be i mean this if there's any place to be that is safe for patients it's it's at the hospitals i mean this is what we are specifically thinking about is isolating and protecting healthcare workers and patients from the spread of this and this and we know from the little data that we have here in the U.S., there's actually been very little healthcare worker transmission, unlike the outbreak, uh, the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. There's actually been very little healthcare worker transmission and very little, uh, you know, intra-hospital transmission of, of COVID, even in the in the huge surge uh, hospitals. Yeah, no, no shaper. I would agree. I mean, considering both systems are doing, you know, some type of universal protection strategy across the board. Um, It's interesting, you know, we've told everybody, obviously, across the country to shelter in place. And then you see on the news, um, you know, everybody showing the patient or the pictures from the hospitals that can be certainly alarming. And and now what we're faced with, to your point, is um, people not seeking care when they should and having chronic illnesses become worse or, and you mentioned this point, you know, as a former interventional cardiologist, it's interesting to me, the 30 to 40% drop 
in you know acute MIs and strokes and the typical emergencies that you would see hitting our ERs that just aren't showing up. And there's a variety of different you know people speculating about why that is. Um, but to your point, what I'm concerned about, and you brought up a couple of really good examples, is patients are now going to start showing up um, with more severe chronicity that they wouldn't have had, um, you know, had they come to the emergency room when they really needed it. From an infection prevention standpoint, are you doing universal masking there at Duke, or, or what's your approach to this? Well, uh, so we are. I think that's public knowledge, so I'm not dispelling any of our secrets, but I, uh, you know, the like, so part of the cancellation of elective procedures was to maintain, you know, ability for a surge, to maintain, to, to take care of a surge of patients, and you don't want to take up beds for elective procedures when we need them for uh, uh, people who are sick with COVID, and so uh, when, when we realized we're not necessarily having to deal with this surge uh, or we've got enough maintenance beds and and then you know community prevalence is kind of at a steady state then that's when we're starting to think about uh, opening up surgeries and this is not uh, without a lot of caution and trepidation because surgery in itself and the perioperative uh, things that are done are, are can still are, are still a high risk for the healthcare workers. And so uh, at Duke, we're doing the uh, pre-screening, everybody. Mm -hmm. And that that is, I don't know if that's the best way to go about this or not, because, you know, there's some problems with doing mass screening because uh, our tests aren't perfect there are such things as false negatives that can be falsely reassuring and it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't wear the appropriate ppe for uh patients uh and then there the flip side of that like do you do universal respiratory precautions in patients and that that's been alluded to in a, a few editorials and i i, I personally in, as an infection preventionist background i think a good mix of both strategies is probably appropriate as well as risk stratifying uh, particular patients and mm -hmm. procedures. You know, if there's procedures that are high risk, like ENT procedures or uh, whatever you're doing in somebody's face, well, maybe everyone involved in that particular procedure, including anesthesia, obviously should be in full PPE. Uh, uh, universally um, uh, let's see some other things oh a really helpful guidelines for reopening that that we have found is has been published by the American College of Surgeons and I, I actually would encourage uh, facilities to go check this website out they've got a few good resources on there and they talk about first you know be aware of the community incidents and uh and prevalence and and then aware of what your hospital is capable of dealing with and so if you're thinking about reopening your hospital for elective procedures you know you need to think about what that means for 
you know, depending on how you're going to handle the screening, if you're going to do screening of everybody or if you're going to do mass uh, or universal uh, respiratory precautions or some mixture in between, and then you can kind of plug those situations into your uh, your PPE burn calculator to help decide what your um, cap- capacity would be of uh, taking care of these patients if you do open it up to elective procedures. And, right. and then, uh, you know, start thinking about the personnel and, you know, all the other logistics that go with it. Um, and then there's just so many, you know, peri-procedural steps that really need a good workflow process eye to take it take advantage and uh try to understand the best way to handle patients and maintain social distancing and um uh and then you know i think communication is huge uh, like that that particular sur- survey as you mentioned earlier that shows uh you know women and seniors are going to be extremely reticent to come right. in for these procedures uh, you know, the other thing I would think about when you're reopening stuff, and this is true for a lot of things with this, the COVID pandemic is, and, and, and the ACS, American College of Surgeons website really uh, highlights this too, is, is to have a governance committee. Mm-hmm. So we all come in this with our biases. So I'm a ID, infection prevention, hospital epi bias. So I'm going to be usually the most conservative in the room as far as allowing uh, things to actually happen and open up. Whereas, you know, surgeons need to operate to put food on the table and hospitals need to operate to put food on the table and, uh, you know, supply chain, logistics people need to have capacity to be able to, to do things. And so everybody needs to have a say in this, but there should be somebody, a committee, I think, that can weigh in and, and make decisions. And uh, I think most important, a committee like this or, you know, the, whoever the facility uh, is making decisions needs to be ready to back off at any time. Right. You know, like, like you look at uh, Georgia and people are kind of, Georgia and Texas, I guess, and South Carolina are people kind of, criticizing them opening up too soon and being a canary in a dangerous deadly coal mine is a quote that I've seen and you know that may be true but I don't necessarily see it that way I see it as as long as they're able to look at their data and their which is their incidence of new cases or prevalence in the community you know, capacity of ICU beds, deaths that are occurring, and they're, um, you know, still looking at this just like our facility should be, then back off. And if it's going up, if these measures are going up and, uh, and be ready to say this is, so we got to back off and not that that was a mistake to open up or allow these things to happen, but now we're seeing the cases rise. So we need to back off and, and don't be afraid to do that. If you're testing everybody, um, is it the, the PCR test? Is it the antibody test? Is it a combination? What, what are you currently using? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so testing 
first has to be delineated uh, as uh, you're, you're testing for someone with an acute illness or acute infection, like they have the infection now versus they had the infection. And so the, the acute test, to test to somebody if he's currently infected is, is right now is a, is a PCR-based uh, test or molecular test. Right. And and these are, you know, we have a lot of experience with these types of tests, but uh, and so we think they're fairly sensitive and fairly specific. Um, and you know, I the, mentioned the hesitancy uh, of mass testing. I would have just because we don't actually know the characteristics of the test in uh, each platform is a little bit different depending on which cycle threshold they're using for what is a positive. And, and so uh, that means you know, that taken in combination with the community prevalence will be what determines the positive predictive value and negative predictive value of mm -hmm. that test. And so I, you know, those, uh, scenarios are are right now kind of in flux, and so all that I think needs to be taken into account before you consider mass testing. Um, we still think that testing and doing, if you get an appropriate specimen, which is a native variant swab, uh, um, or sputum, which is you know best a uh, uh, BAL is actually the most sensitive. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend that on most patients. But right. um, those uh, those tend to be uh, fairly sensitive and have an excellent negative predictive value, uh, especially when the prevalence in most of our states communities is still uh, you know in the single digits as far as percentage of, of cases. And so I think it, it, we think it should be a, a good test for ruling out patients acutely, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and thinking about things like preparing or pre-screening screening for surgery. You can't, like, for instance, pre-screen somebody like you do for MRSA uh, a week or two before. You would have to pre-screen them like the day before. Right. Um, and, you know, then... You also kind of run into the scenario, what do you do with the positives if they're asymptomatic or, uh, you know, we know from uh, uh, King County uh, um, report uh, from the CDC in, in Washington that about 50% of uh, the positives that they had when they screened these patients were either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. And those patients really were significant uh, in the transmission. So, we are probably going to catch some of these if you do a more mass uh, screening and, and therefore, um, you know, what do we do with those and, you know, how important is it for us to catch those? And, um, maybe I'm getting down the rabbit hole that you didn't want to get down in. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, so I, I was going to mention too, the, the next, uh, option for testing right now that's a newest hot topic I know is the serum antibody testing or right. what they're calling serology testing and you know this is interesting to me because um, 
people in my family have already gotten this test. And I just oh, had really? a neighbor come up to me last night saying, hey, I just got back to my doctor's office, get my serology test to see if I've had it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that's this is the serology testing is is should be thought of as a totally different uh, venue or, or method or reason for doing this. And this is detecting for antibodies. And we know right. and these immunology studies that have been rushed out uh, during this pandemic, you know, you produce early antibodies uh, usually within six to 14 days. And that's the IgM antibody. And then the IgG is going to come at least two weeks uh, after your onset of symptoms or two weeks um, or even longer after that. And uh, real quick, one, we don't know if those antibodies are protective. Right. Two, we don't have any guidance from the FDA, and they did just crack down recently because there's a lot of uh, fraudulent testing out there. But we don't know uh, which antibodies necessarily are the best antibodies that are going to be the most specific. You know, a lot of you will know that there's coronaviruses out there that have been circulating every respiratory viral season other than the SARS coronavirus 1 and SARS coronavirus 2 and the MERS virus. So uh, there are four strains of coronavirus that are out there um, that are just as prominent or more prominent than this one. And so if you have, like, how do we have a, we have to make sure that these tests are testing your antibodies to the SARS coronavirus 2 and not the other strain. Right, and so that that's one thing that's is uh, is is actually evolving as we speak, and uh, I think there are a few companies that have uh, gotten a little further than others as far as being specific, and and really how we're going to use that as a healthcare facility, I think is kind of yet to be determined. Ideally, I see it as um, uh, one being helpful for determining who uh, who could be used for convalescent serum donors and uh two if, if we can get one specific enough uh and have the patience to wait long enough then you will be able to find those who are probably uh have been infected and are likely to be uh immune from reinfection but we even that we don't know if they're immune from reinfection if we find the antibodies switch gears just a little bit and talk about treatment and the ones that are getting you know the biggest airtime um, certainly is remdesivir that's had some interesting you know positive early findings from some trials that are ongoing um, but certainly shows some promise and then um, the same with convalescent plasma and i know you and you know colleagues there at duke are pretty deeply involved in some of these trials so just a couple thoughts schaefer that you have around treatment yeah, that's it is a hot topic, especially you know if a lot of the a lot of places are seeing these patients get sick, and you kind of feel like your hands are tied as a provider, not being able to help them. Uh, but remdesivir and convalescent serum to us seem to be uh, rising to the top. Um, remdesivir, the exciting news came out, I guess Friday last Friday uh, that it 
the trial uh, run by the NIAH um, is uh, is very promising, and they showed uh, statistical uh, improvement in uh, time to recovery, symptom recovery from 15 to 11 days and over a thousand patients. There was a trend towards uh, significance and mortality, in reduction of mortality. And, you know, it was enough for um, uh, government to say this is uh, um, the best we have and it, sh- it is showing some time to improvement. So we are going to say this is a standard of care um that uh and when they say that they uh also kind of took it uh and said this is how we're going to deal it out under the fema um uh, and so facilities are basically being handed by the national or i guess what is it authorized distributor amerisource yeah. uh bergen mm-hmm. uh to find out whether or not they can actually get access to uh, uh emergency use uh remdesivir and this is outside of a clinical trial um but also there are clinical trials still ongoing with remdesivir Right. That actually makes it a little bit. It, it this has made it a little bit more difficult to get remdesivir, even if you're in a clinical trial. And so uh, that particular clinical trial, the ACT trial, has, has been put on hold, and I'll probably restart here with some different uh, types of treatment. Yeah, uh, we were talking about this um, yesterday, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again today. It's really problematic, um, you know, when the government says a certain drug, remdesivir is the standard of care, and then you've got this confusion between HHS and FEMA and kind of a breakdown in communication along the way as to who's going to, you know, allocate and and distribute this. The the one thing we do know, right, is that Amerisource Bergen is the distributor, but how it's being allocated, to me, as we talked this morning, to be honest, I have no idea. (laughs) It's just not clear at all. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if, you know, I think hospitals required to report their COVID cases through NHSN and maybe that module is being used, uh, that information is being used uh, to help determine where it goes. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I looked at the map on the public Tableau uh, dashboard this morning. It, it can be extremely frustrating. I can imagine a hospital, uh, especially a community hospital, doesn't have trials or the ability to do a trial right now. Uh, and uh, a patient comes and is asking for the standard of care that's been, right. you know, told this is the standard of care by our government, and then say I, I can't get you the standard of care. That's <laughs> just, yeah, it's just an extremely frustrating situation uh, to be in. And even yeah, even those hospitals that have it, I think they're not necessarily going to have enough for everybody. To no, show not at all. I mean, that, that's exactly right. They've talked about thirty-two thousand doses. Um, which I think, you know, if I read it correctly, that's about 5%, you know, of the total doses that Mm -hmm. would need to be distributed nationally. So it's a small Mm -hmm. amount. Um, And again, you know, my understanding was those are supposed to be um, allocated primarily to the quote unquote, you know, hotspot areas, but there's still just a lot of, you know, confusion about that. So hopefully, you know, within the next 
you know, few days um, to come, we can get some clarity around that between HHS and, and FEMA. And then, um, Schaefer, talk just a little bit more about the convalescent CIRA uh, piece. Well, the convalescent CIRA piece is appealing because it is, uh, it's got an old track record for treating infections. And so we have an established process and there's a, you know, national wide uh, process for getting uh, uh, plasma, and I would still not recommend doing it outside of a trial. Uh, and if the other plus of this is is you don't have to be in a you know a trial center or an academic institution to actually get access to the uh, uh, convalescent serum. Uh, you know, just giving somebody hydroxychloroquine, for instance, or steroids, or vitamin C or, uh, you know, progesterone, estrogen, all these other things that are kind of coming out, like this is what we're trying. I, I would not want to do that outside of a clinical trial because uh, we we need to know if they're working. So I was just curious from your perspective, if there's been any innovations, you know, at your facility that you've seen, number one, and then number two, anything that you think will be you know dur durable beyond this event there's some really cool things like you said how to how to kind of manage a patient uh semi-remotely right um you know like uh iv tubing that is basically being strung <laughs> through over the top of the room right and uh funneled outside the room uh with the pumps outside the rooms for the for the nurses to run. i mean like some of that that makes me nervous but uh some of it i think is pretty creative you know, the, a lot of things that we kind of started doing early on is uh, is uh, is basically a little bit of a, all these different nuances uh, through telehealth and medicine and right. anything from calling the patient and getting the history and then uh, getting up only to do a quick exam or, uh, or looking at them through the window and doing FaceTime or uh, there's, you know, a, a slew of different modalities to do uh, tele-stewardship with the camera um, that I think uh, will probably have some lasting effect. I don't know how long it'll last in the hospital necessarily, but it certainly uh, will improve the acceptance, I think, of, of tele-consult services. For instance, tele-neuro is a very popular one around the nation. I think that has those kind of platforms are gaining traction here for us even uh, to do tele-ID um, and that's we consider doing that for other hospitals uh, specifically for in this pandemic and uh, that will probably have a lasting impact for us for, for uh, the specialty of ID. Uh, our clinic, primary care clinics also are, um, we've done, I want to say the majority of our visits in these past six weeks have been uh, tele on, over the phone, either with uh, these FaceTime apps or uh, just a phone visit. And honestly, patients love it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think maybe some specialties lend to it more than others. And, but, you know, our patients really enjoy it. Those with, you know, leg infections that we do end up having to follow for weeks at a time, if if I can get a picture of their wound and I don't have to do any debridement or 
biopsy and uh, we can get serial pictures of how things are looking, then that, that sometimes will suffice. And then you can say, well, look, I, I need to take a better look at that. Let's have, let's set up a in-person visit next week or something. Right. Uh, and I think patients love that. Um, I know yeah, I, no. I would actually really appreciate that to not have to sit in the uh, waiting room or drive or take off, you know, three hours of work for a 15 minute visit type of thing. And, that's right. Um, um, I think that's fantastic. You know, that that's getting such a big shot in the arm. And I think that I hope that genie's out of the bottle. And um, I really appreciate your, your time, your expertise and your, your willingness to, talk to us um, here this morning and um, let us know, obviously, if there's anything we can do um, to help you and look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. I appreciate everything Health Trust is doing.